right, first and second chronicles, let's start with prayer and then we will wrap it up tonight. Lord, thank you for your word again and for uh, the treasure that it is. And so you think about the joy of discovery as Pastor Jess touched on this morning. I pray that you'd give us that tonight. Help us to see new things, wonderful things we've never seen before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it is, like we were mentioning, kind of odd, right, to be finishing up a study of the Old Testament out of order of our Bibles. But like we talked about last time, First and Second Chronicles is actually at the end of Jesus's Bible. It's the last part of the writings. Uh, and it is, strangely enough, before historically, Ezra and Nehemiah, right? Ezra and Nehemiah kind of concludes the, the history that we have. But First and Second Chronicles is, I think, providentially placed where it is and, and does something for us, okay? So Chronicles is, now what it's doing, it's, it's basically, well, I read one author this week, it's a wonderful biblical theolo- theological survey of the entire Old Testament, right? So as we'll see, the, the author goes all the way to Adam and then traces that all the way through David and beyond, right? So it's really a survey of the entire Old Testament in essentially what is one book, two books in our Bible. And it's got specifically... It's focus on the line of David and proper worship. Those are the, the driving themes in the book of Chronicles that the, the chronicler really wants us to see, okay? Now, it is in our Bibles, right? It's placed right after First and Second Kings. So if you're reading along Samuel, First and Second Kings, you jump right back into Chronicles, and it seems redundant, right? We just read all these stories, and now we're recounting them again. Why is it that it's placed this way? Um, And so I think because of where it's placed in the Bible, and then the fact that you start out with nine chapters of genealogies, it often gets overlooked, right? We're like, ugh. Except for Connie. Connie's the one that's like, I've been waiting for the genealogies. The only one well, not the only one, but, but most people, we look at the genealogies and we just go, ah, what is going on here? Okay. Um, but Chronicles should not be overlooked. Okay. To, to overlook it would be a, 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 a serious mistake. Now it does convey some of the same information uh, and in the same order as Samuel and Kings does, but it has a, a different uh, thing. If you think about it, we have how many gospels about the life of Christ? four, right? And do they tell largely the same story? But is he reading each one the same thing? No, they're all uh, telling us, shining the same, a different light on the same subject in many ways. Or like in some cases in John's gospel, he's telling us things that none of the other gospels are doing, or he's elaborating more on things that, that the other gospels writers did not. So Chronicles is kind of in a way doing what Samuel and Kings did not do, right? He's shining his light on the same historical events, but showing us a different perspective, if you could say that. Not a contrary one, but he's, he's trying to kind of make a different point, okay? Now, if you think also as well, Chronicles is written late, probably around the 400s would be the, the, the time that it would be speculated that it's written. So if you think this is, again, this is the time of, this would be after Nehemiah, after Ezra, and all the people that are in the land, they know the history of Israel, right? They're familiar with, they would have at this point, all of the prophets. They'd have the writings. They're familiar with Samuel and Kings and all of this. So these stories are not, uh, not new, okay? Um, but what the, the chronicler is doing again is he is shining his light on the things that are most important 
for Israel's past as well as for Israel's future. Okay, so here's the purpose as I've written it out in my paragraph here. Chronicles exists to remind its readers that God has not forsaken his covenant promises to the nation of Israel. It kind of relates to what Pastor Jess preached on this morning in a way, right? Okay? He's not forsaken his promises. The emphasis on Chronicles on David, proper worship, and adherence to Yahweh's law sets an example for the returning remnant to emulate. The faithfulness of God in the past and the remnant's connection to those like David gives the remnant confidence that God will still finish his work he began at creation. Yahweh's faithfulness to his covenant gives hope to the nation that they can still be a new Adam living in the presence of God, a new Eden ruled by a Davidic king. Okay, because this is a, the, whole, the whole point again, right? That what God began in creation ultimately will be consummated again in the new creation. And where Adam failed, uh, Israel becomes a new Adam, which leads us eventually to who is the new and final Adam, the true and better Adam. Christ, right? So this is the, the, the progression of the story of the Bible and the story of the nation of Israel, okay? Now, uh, there is no author named of the book of Chronicles. Uh, Jew, some Jewish tra- tradition says it was Ezra, uh, and, and it could be Ezra, but a lot of people think it may be a little bit later writing than, than Ezra would have, would have um, written there. Others have proposed that it was possibly a Levite because there's a really uh, good understanding of the Levitical system, um, which would fit with Ezra uh, as well. Um, But the audience as well, again, is this post-exilic remnant that is back in the land. And you're thinking, this is a group of people that are, they are back in the land, but there's still this element of disillusionment that they have not fully experienced the, the restoration promised by Isaiah and Jeremiah and uh, Haggai and Zechariah and things that, you know, they're, they're still occupied by the Persians and these other governments. And they're wondering when will, what does the future hold for us? And so Chronicles steps in <coughs> to help them understand that. Uh, a couple of things, it's important to note the differences between Samuel Kings and Chronicles. So you got a little chart in there, which I stole from somebody else. Um, and it just shows the, the differences in themes. And it is interesting what an author chooses to emphasize or not emphasize versus another author kind of helps, helps you see the, the story a little bit, right? So in First and Second Kings, the theme is covenant failure. Uh, in First and Second Chronicles, you have covenant continuity, transformation, and theological stability. The, the focus in Kings is doom, whereas the focus in Chronicles is much more hopeful than it is in Kings. Uh, kings, apostasy, idolatry, and the role of the kings and the prophets are emphases. Uh, if you think in First and Second Kings, we have several chapters devoted just to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And in Chronicles, all you have is Elijah is mentioned one time about a letter he wrote. That's it, right? So it's interesting that the prophets don't have the same uh, role. Uh, In Chronicles, you see the role, uh, the emphasis of retribution theology, that is blessings or curses, and the role of the priests and the Levites. They take a much more prominent role. Uh, First and Second Kings ends with judgment and captivity with a hint of hope, whereas in First and Second Chronicles, you have the shift from monarchy to theocracy with dominant hope of full kingdom restoration. First and Second Kings, the audience uh, and their question, it's the exilic community questioning why did the exile happen? And the post-exilic community in First and Second Chronicles is asking, when will the kingdom be restored? Okay, so people out of the land versus people back in the land. And the recurrent motifs 
In First and Second Kings, you always had every king in Israel was compared to Jeroboam, whether they continued in the sins of Jeroboam with the golden calf worship, or were they faithful like David if they're kings in Judah or kings in Israel, right? And then in First and Second Chronicles, the Davidic dynasty and Yahweh's kingship over all repentance and reform is the means to God's favor, okay? Now, a couple other things just to note, if you're reading along in First and Second Chronicles, you will notice that there is no mention of the kings of Israel except for when they coincide with the kings of Judah, okay? Because remember that, that at this point, or well, after Rehoboam, the kingdom is split in two. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in kings, it's always alternating back and forth, right? So you'll have the king in Judah, and then we learn about the king in Israel, king of Judah, so on and so forth. Well, in Chronicles, it doesn't do that. It just tracks the kings in Judah. That's a pretty significant change from the, from the first, first, or from first and second kings in Samuel. Um, secondly, the prominent sins of David and Solomon are left out, right? There's no record of the sin with Bathsheba. Uh, there is no record of Solomon's many wives leading his heart away from the Lord. The only, uh, the sin that's recorded for us of David is his census in numbering the people, which is significant because that leads to the judgment of the Lord and the Lord stopping the judgment at uh, the, th- the threshing floor of Onan. And there David buys that spot as the future side of the temple, right? So that's part of the reason I think that story is in there. Um, there's no record of David's fleeing from Saul for all of those years. There's no record of at the end of David's life and the, uh, the attempt by Absalom to overthrow him, right? The, it, it's almost as if the chronicler uh, isn't interested in ever, and it's not that he's, he's trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, uh, but he's not interested in showing like threats to the line of David by like Absalom or by Saul. Right? So it's just kind of interesting, the things that he, he leaves, leaves out. Okay? Um, again, he's not trying to pull the, the wool over their eyes. The nation would be familiar with these, with these stories. Okay? Um, now the other thing, just as we talk about reading through the book of Chronicles, and I think that, that experience of reading it, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings are very uh, like action-driven, as in they're recounting specific details, right? There's lots of battle records. They went out to fight this day, and this is what happened in this battle, okay? Or uh, I think about uh, when, like, Ishbosheth is murdered, or Abner is murdered. There's all these accounts of how that happened. Chronicles doesn't really do that. Chronicles is driven by prayers, speeches, prophecies, things like that. It's, it's more and in like uh, charges given to people, okay? And these things all relate to the spiritual state of the nation. So the things that are emphasized by the kings are all things relating to like what they prayed, what they charged people with as they led worship or instructed. Uh, it's not about you know, these records of, you know, David in the cave and cutting off Saul's cloak, things like that. So it's just, it's different in what it chooses to emphasize and bring out. Okay. So in that way, it is kind of like another gospel account where you could combine all of these things together and you can make one cohesive unit. But the author, by choosing to focus just on these prayers and speeches and things like that, he is saying, this is the most important things in the history of the nation. Okay. Does that make sense? All right, so let's kind of walk through uh, the outline. And again, we have the whole genealogy laid out there for you. Bottom line, what this, this genealogy is doing is it is tracing the seed of the woman, 
If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, there's that promise that the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. And you can go, and this is what I did in my Bible, uh, just start circling all the red or all the, the seed of the woman relations. So from Adam to Seth to Noah to uh, Shem, and then it just goes sh- generations after Shem, and then it jumps ahead. So you can kind of see that happening in your Bible. Uh, it's kind of a helpful, helpful thing. So the genealogy kind of breaks down like this. Uh, in chapter one, you have this genealogy that starts from Adam to Jacob, who has his name changed to Israel, of course. And again, if you look like at that, and this is where that genealogy is helpful. If you think about a family tree, right, it just is always spreading out and getting wider and wider and wider. Well, this genealogy is pretty narrow in the sense that he decides, you know, there are places where he just, okay, I'm going to take this line, I'm just going to write down like he does at verse 24. He goes from Shem to Arpad to Shelah to Eber to Peleg to Ru. Of course, there's descendants off of all of those people, but he's not interested in tracing all the other descendants off of there. He's tracing the seed of the woman, right? So he's just going to send it one right after the other that was through the, the promise. So you have Nahor, of course, he was the father of Terah, who's the father of Abraham, Okay, so he's, he's going all the way back to creation, getting us to Abraham, and then from here, now we're going to explore the, further the genealogy of the nation of Israel. Chapter 2 takes us from Jacob, who's Israel, through Judah to Perez, the son of Perez, who is Hezron and his descendants. So remember, Judah had, uh, oh, who was it? Tamar, Perez, and Zerah. Right? And so he doesn't cha- trace the line of Zerah, he traces the line of Perez because that's the line of promise. That's the one to whom the blessing uh, continues on. Okay? So then it goes from Perez to Hezron and his descendants. And the point in, in chapter 2, I think, in, in tracing this genealogy is that we see Jesse, who's the father of David. Right? That's kind of the, the point he's trying to emphasize there. Because what happens is then uh, after... Jesse is shown in verse uh, 13 of chapter 2. It continues to go on past uh, uh, and then in details further this line of, of Hezron, and it goes beyond the place where David is in the, the line. So I think in chapter 2, you're seeing like cousins of David in that family tree, if that makes sense. Okay, Then chapter 3, Okay, so you've kind of got a broader picture of the descendants of Judah as far as David is related. Then in chapter 3, he, looks, he zooms in and looks just more specifically at the line of David, okay? Because this is, this is a really, really key thing, okay? Um, so you're kind of given a big picture. All right, here's where David falls in this whole family tree. Okay, let's look specifically now at David in chapter 3 is what's happening there, okay? Um, so this would be a specific branch within, if you think, the you have Israel, Jacob, Israel. Of course, all the descendants of his, he has 12 sons. You have Judah. And then within Judah, we're looking specifically at Perez. And then within Perez, we're looking specifically at Hezron. And from there on down, we get to, we get to David. So it's, it's really getting in close, okay? Then in chapter four, we have from Judah to Shobal's line. So here it's pulling back out. So if you've zoomed in to look at the specific part, now you're pulling back out in chapter four. And you're looking at one particular branch within the house of Judah, 
with David. Now you're going to go look at another part in chapter four. And I think what's happening in chapter four is that it's picking up where chapter two kind of left off is what I, I think. These, these things to try and track this out is really tricky. Figure out where, who, who's, he, who's connected? Where's he picking up? Where's this leaving off? But I think that's kind of what, what is happening. Is that right? Okay, but is that right that in chapter four, he's kind of picking up where chapter two leaves off? Okay, good. I'm glad I got that, okay? Um, Shobel in chapter four, so he says the sons of Judah, Perez. Now, okay, it is interesting to note this. When he says the sons of Judah, was, Perez was the son of Judah, but Hezron would be the grandson, Carmi the great-grandson, Hur the great-great-grandson, and then Shobal would be the fifth generation down. So understand when they talk about son, they're not talking about like when I say Silas is my son, but it could be generations down would be sons. That's why, uh, you know, you'll read sometimes a king, they'll say, you know, 10 generations later, he walked in the ways of, of David, his father, well, his father wasn't actually David, right? But he's in that line, so he's considered the father, okay? So that's what's happening there. So when you see that, it's, not, it's a successive line that we're seeing there in, in chapter four, okay? Now, uh, then it goes from chapter four, starting verse 24, it goes outside of the line of Judah, and now we're gonna look at the other branches within the tribe of Israel, Okay, so remember, you have 12 tribes, 12 sons. So we're going to look at Simeon. Um, and the other thing that it is to know, okay, th- and this is, a, this is an important structural point. Was Judah the firstborn in Israel? Of, no, he's number four in the line, right? Reuben was actually the firstborn. So it's pretty fascinating that the chronicler places Judah's descendants at the very beginning and David within that, because neither is David the firstborn uh, Sorry, I just went, I was getting a phone call and I want to make sure it wasn't my wife like calling to say she'd gone in labor or something like that. Um, so, so obviously by placing Judah at the beginning, he, he really wants us to see the importance of the nation of Judah. Now, everybody else in the list basically gets just little blurbs for a, for a, uh, for a genealogy. So Simeon, right? Simeon has uh, just 20 or so verses devoted to his descendants, okay? So he's not, he's not the focus, okay? Um, it does seem that, they, that in, within these tribes, the chronicler will take note of certain people and, and notice their faithfulness. Um, like in chapter four, um, among verse 10, we see uh, Jabez, who is, who is mentioned amongst the Simeonites. We have those who drove out the Amalekites. It mentions them in verse 41, and they lived in peace. So it's almost like within these other tribes, the chronicler is saying, hey, also look at these people and model their way of life, okay? Um, chapter five, the descendants of Reuben. Of course, here, the, the important thing that is brought, brought out is that Reuben lost his birthright, and his birthright was passed to Joseph. Of course, Joseph gets the double portion. Then we get the descendants of Gad, the descendants of the half-tribe of Manasseh, who is the son of Joseph. Now, these three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they're the ones that all settle on the east side of the Jordan. No. Yes, the east side of the Jordan River. So if you have your little map there, it shows the, the allotment of the tribes. That's where they all, all settled, okay? 
Then we go to the descendants of Levi. Now, Levi is given much more page time than any of the other tribes except for Judah. And this also would correlate with the chronicler's emphasis on two key themes, the line of David through Judah and proper worship, because what do the Levites do? Well, this is the tribe from the priests. This is the tribe of the ones who lead the worship in the temple. And these two issues are key to Israel's success, David and proper worship. Okay, so Levi is, uh, we're given his line, then Issachar, Benjamin, Naphtali. Notice how little amount of time is devoted to these guys. Then we get to the descendants of the other half-tribe of Manasseh, which was settled on the western side of the Jordan River. The, son, the descendants of Ephraim. This is the other uh, son of Joseph. The descendants of Asher. And then we zoom in uh, and we look at Benjamin to Saul and Saul's descendants through Jonathan in chapter 8. Okay, And then by the time we get to chapter 9... Now we're connecting the genealogy of those who have returned to the land to all of these prior genealogies, okay? So it's, it's, it's seeking in chapter 9 to connect, again, like, like Nehemiah and Ezra did with their genealogies, connect the, re, the remnant that has returned back to the land with their forefathers that were in the land before, right? You have a right to this, okay? So that's kind of the, the genealogies. You got it perfectly now? This is, this is what you want to listen to every single week, right? We should have just done it. We'll just do a genealogy study sometime. <sighs> no. Yeah, Connie, Connie, she would be the only one here. I don't think I'd be even here for that. <laughs> okay, just a couple of thoughts on this. The first one is from Jim Hamilton, and I think I put this in your notes. He said this, The impetus to compile genealogies and to preserve ancient words springs from the promises made to Israel. Promises are made about a coming seed of the woman, so the descendants of the woman are carefully tracked and recorded. The making of a genealogy is an act of faith. That's important when we read this and we go like, what is the point? It's an act of faith. And the whole point is he's saying, hey, there is this promise made here to Adam and Eve, right? Who's going to come from this? And we can follow it all the way through, right? And we're descendants of that very same promise, okay? Um. The other thing that you see in this is those, those emphasis on those who obeyed, and then the other language he uses is those who broke faith, right? Those who were more sinful and broke faith with the Lord, okay? Um, all right, let's, uh, let's move on. So we're going to jump in now in chapter, the second half of chapter, or last part of chapter 9 into to chapter 10. Um, and really, from this point forward, what I think the chronicler is doing, the, the main point is going to be emphasizing, and this is what I'm going to try and point out, the prayers, the speeches, the prophecies, those, those words that are spoken, because I think that's, again, uh, illuminating for us the, the point that the chronicler wants to to uh, drive home. The other thing that you'll notice, and if you go through First Chronicles and you have a highlighter, what I did, every time you see a reference to what a king did in regards to the temple or to the priesthood or something like that, highlight that and note it because the chronicler is drawing out, this is the, the key evaluating point. How did they help or hinder the worship of the nation? Okay, so I think that's, you know, back in... Um, Again, like in Chronicles, or in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, the evaluating point was always on whether they walked in the ways of David or the ways of Jeroboam. Here, the evaluating point seems to be, what did they do in regards to helping or hindering worship? 
Okay? All right, so first of all, we're introduced to Saul. He is given just a few uh, verses, and really the point is it's setting the stage for David. You know, so much of there, we have a lot about Saul, but it's all left out in Chronicles because the point is let's, we, we want to get to David, okay? He wants the, the returning exiles to see their hope lies in the descendant of David. So in chapter 11, we get to David, and it goes all the way through the end of the book. So we have a, uh, 18 chapters devoted to David. Um, the, the, the thing, too, that we're going to see with David is when we're looking at that theme of what did they do to help or hinder the worship, all, I, I think it's two-thirds of the recorded things that we have are all about David's preparations for the temple or David bringing the ark up, right? So they're all worship-oriented. So not only is David key for the nation's future as far as a king, but again, he's future, uh, he's, he's prominent and important in, in their uh, worship practices as well, okay? The other thing that you'll see, David, we'll see later on, he, he's not able to build the temple, why? Because he's a man of war. Uh, and, but those military exploits are used to fund the building of the temple, okay? So chapters 11 through 16, we see David's military success and reverence for the ark. Notice in chapter 13, the first speech he says in verses two through three, he's, he's giving a speech that the ark should be brought up because at this point in the story, right, it's been with the Philistines and then it's brought back and it's stayed at this guy's house. Um, and this leads, of course, to this uh, dreadful scene with Uzzah reaching out and touching the ark. But he, what happens we see with David is that he goes and studies the law and he learns how the ark is to be carried on poles, not on a cart. That's how the Philistines treated it. It's supposed to be carried differently. And so he, he gives instructions for that. He teaches uh, and then they bring it up properly. And so in chapter 16, what we have emphasized for us is this song of thanks that David writes, which is one of the Psalms that we have recorded for us. So here we have these two important elements brought out already, his speech and his song. And then we get to chapter 17, and we have this Davidic covenant, which is a, a key moment in the book. We saw this in 2 Samuel 7 as well. And this is emphasized again because this Davidic covenant is key for Israel's future. Just as the Abrahamic covenant is key for establishing what the Lord is going to do through this nation. Here, the Davidic covenant is key in seeing that the Lord is going to continue these promises through this line of David. Um, the Davidic covenant, again, just as a, a refresher in case we've forgotten, uh, a covenant is a binding promise, usually with, with obligations made on both parties. But here we have the Lord covenanting or promising to do something uh, not dependent upon David. He says here, the, the promise is that I will make one of your, I will, I will give the throne of Israel to your descendants. David's offspring will hold that throne forever. Um, look at verses one through 15. We'll kind of just notice a couple of things there. First of all, this is another emphasis of speech. The Lord speaks to David through his prophet, through Nathan. Okay, look at verse 10. Uh, notice what the, the Lord is declaring to do and what he promises. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, the Lord will, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will, the Lord will, establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Of course, here he's, he's referencing what Solomon will do. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who is before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Okay, so this is an important point to be reiterated again to Jews who have returned to the land who are not living under a Davidic king, right? Uh, This promise will not fail. The Lord will fulfill his word. The house of David will be established forever. So then we get to a recorded prayer starting in verse 16. And this is David's prayer of thanks in response. He hears this wonderful word from the Lord and he responds in praise. And here he's confessing that God is glorified when he's faithful to his covenant. Right? This is what we, what we saw this morning. By no means should God not fulfill his word. He absolutely will, and God is glorified when he does it. So look at verse 23. And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken, and your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, is Israel's God, and the house of your servant, David, will be established before you. Right? So, He is saying, when God is faithful to his word, God is praised. And he's faithful uh, in in establishing the house of David. Uh, Then we go on in chapters 18 through 20, record for us David's victories that happens here. Uh, Again, it's not detailed in the same way as as uh, 1 and 2 Samuel would record record it for us. and then we get to chapter 21, and we have David's sin in numbering the people. As I mentioned earlier, I think the, the key point here is, uh, the reason this is brought in is because this is where David buys this threshing floor, which becomes the site of the temple, which is actually Mount Moriah, uh, which is significant because what else happened on Mount Moriah? Isaac, right? The sacrifice, the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, the substitute provided there. Uh, so a wonderful uh, correlation there. Uh, chapters 22 through 29, David prepares for the temple building. Uh, this is largely uh, what we have, um, his recording of things that were brought in. Chapter 22 uh, talks about the things that he brought. The, get these numbers. This is, this is staggering. A hundred thousand talents of gold. That's 750,000 pounds. That's a lot of gold, right? Uh, One million talents of silver. That's 75 million pounds of silver that were brought in for this. If I did, I believe that math is done right. And then they use the phrase, more bronze and iron than can be weighed. (laughs) They're like, we we got done at 75 million. And then we, the bronze and iron were like, oh, can't even start, right? So, I mean, this is a massive amount of things. And this is timber and stone as well. I'm assuming they're like, there's so much timber and stone. We can't weigh it. We've spent all this time weighing the silver and gold. How are we going to weigh all this, this other stuff? Okay. And then in chapter 22, we have another speech from David, this time given to Solomon. And then in uh, chapter, uh, starting like in chapter three, 23, so 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, we have all these divisions and these listings of these people. David is organizing Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, all of these different things. And you're going, why are all these people here? Well, here's Todd Chipman uh, 
giving us an idea of what's going on here. He says, the author was not just interested in the temple itself, in chapter 22, but its function, its life. The detailed lists of Levites and temple servants were, were crafted to motivate the spiritual servants of the chronicler's day. He was saying, be faithful like your ancestors. The chronicler's record of priestly divisions in chapter 24 would serve as a schematic for the priests serving in the temple. David arranged for the Levitical musicians to provide spiritual guidance through their instruments and songs. The Levitical gatekeepers in chapter 26 were to monitor activity and to promote orderliness among the throngs coming to worship. The chronicler's list of David's secular officials in chapter 27 underscores the notion that the security of Jerusalem and the freedom of worship were clearly associated, right? So they need all these things for worship to function in the proper way, right? And there's going to be a lot of people coming to Jerusalem. There needs to be some organization in this, in this manner, okay? So that's what David is doing. In, in these these final chapters. Chapter 28, we get another speech, David's charge to the nation uh, in verses two through eight. And then in chapter 28, we also see David's charge to Solomon. And then at the end of the chapter, we have, or uh, in verses 10 through 19, David's prayer before the assembly. So again, uh, you can just go back and read, but notice that these speeches and prayers are, are illuminating the, the right heart, the proper response to the Lord. The chronicler is helping us see this is the kind of king that Israel needs. Then we get to Second Chronicles, and we are introduced right away to, to Solomon. Okay, it is interesting. Kings records for us a little bit of political haranguing that happens uh, after the death of David and, uh, or, or near the end of his life, right? Solomon was to be the next king, but there's others who are vying for that position. Chronicles doesn't record that. Solomon's the king. That's where it starts. So it starts out, first thing for us is Solomon's prayer, right? His prayer for wisdom, which the Lord grants to him in chapter one. And then we see him begin to build the temple in chapter two, all the way through chapter four. So all of the things his father has done, he now puts into practice and starts building these things. So that leads us to chapter five and chapter seven, where now we have the dedication. The ark is brought into the temple uh, properly, not like the, the first time it's brought up under, under his father. And then we have this wonderful uh, speech in chapter six and then Solomon's prayer. So um, chapter six is important, uh, because this, and I think we've, we've mentioned this before, this coincides with like what, what Moses teaches and prays in Deuteronomy where, where the, the promise, the, the, the reality of coming exile is foretold, right? And even Solomon in his prayer is saying, hey, when, when we sin and we are taken out of the land, if we turn our hearts to the Lord, right, restore us. Well, this is really good news for exiles, Right? For people that have been exiled from the land and are, are now back, they're experiencing the reality of what the Lord has promised to do. They are now back in the land. He's been faithful to his promise. So Solomon's prayer in chapter 6, this wonderful 
wonderful prayer. All, and again, he's exalting. All of this is that, that God's name would be glorified, right? The, the, what God does in Israel, the worship that happens in the temple, all of this is for the exaltation of the Lord. So chapter seven then, uh, Solomon gets done praying and all of a sudden fire comes from heaven and consumes the sacrifice on the altar. Paul House said this. He said, God chooses to dwell in this place, a sign that divine approval attends the whole process. Besides giving a physical context for God's presence, the temple bears witness to the nation's high regard for the Lord, serves as the focal point for worship, facilitates obedient worship, and stands as a visible symbol of Yahweh's covenant with Israel. Okay? So that's what happens there. Uh, Notice again the emphasis, speeches, and prayers. So chapter 7, the second half, uh, the Lord appears to Solomon. And here you'd have another speech in a sense recorded as the Lord uh, appears to Solomon and he reiterates the Davidic covenant to him. So what was made to his father David continues on down to him. And then chapters eight and nine is really just the success of Solomon uh, that is recorded for us with the, uh, the things that he did and the queen of Sheba coming in and visiting him. Again, no, you know, in Kings, Solomon's life kind of ends on a down note, right? When he was old, his many wives led his heart away from the Lord, but the chronicler does not record that for us. Then we get through the next uh, 26 chapters are all uh, the kings of Judah. So just like we had in, in, uh, in kings, uh, we just go king after king after king, and it tells us things about them. What we see under Rehoboam is the, the, the spirit, Rehoboam and King seem to be portrayed as, he, well, he is, he's a fool, right? He's the one that, that listens to the foolish counsel of the younger counselors and increases the load on the rest of the nation, therefore causing this revolt. Uh, but what the chronicler notes, if you look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 11, is that when the kingdom splits, uh, Israel to the north immediately goes into idolatry. But what the chronicler points out is that all the, or many of the faithful people in Israel, they came down to Judah and they strengthened the nation, right? So you had priests and Levites that lived in the north. They said, we're not going along with this. We're going to go to the south. And there they went to Judah. And so the point seems to be that under Rehoboam, uh, the kingdom strengthened because of this influx of, of faithful worshipers of Yahweh. Chapter 12, though, it says that he abandoned the law of the Lord and uh, did not walk in the way of his father David. Chapter 13 is Abijah. Abijah was also um, the, the, not a great guy, but the, the main thing the chronicler points out from him, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 13, all the way down through verse 12, it's a speech from Abijah to the northern kingdom of Israel. And his whole point in this speech is that the nation of Judah has not forsaken the worship of Yahweh, right? He says, look, we have priests and Levites ministering in the temple. We have not abandoned the worship of Yahweh. And this is from a guy (laughs) that's not a good king. Abijah is not a good one. But yet the chronicler points out this one specific point in his life to make this this key key point. Um, Chapter 14 through 16, we have Asa. 
Um, uh, his, the evaluation of Asa is that he was a godly king, one of the godly kings in Judah. You have a worship evaluation of him would be this, like in chapter 14, verse 4, he commanded the people of Judah to seek the law of the Lord. Chapter 15, verse 8, he rebuilt the altar in the temple that had been torn down. Chapter 15, verse 12, he renewed the covenant with the people. So the chronicler wants you to see these things about Asa. This is the stuff that really matters. Chapter 17, you get to Jehoshaphat, okay? Again, he is a godly king who the Lord established and made uh, prosper. Chapter 18 uh, and chapter 19, you have two uh, significant, well, one, you have a a prophecy in chapter 18. This is where, uh, with this this, uh, uh, prophet Micaiah coming and prophesying about how Ahab would be killed, and it's, it's actually kind of comical. Uh, Ahab is like, I don't like that prophet Micaiah because he always prophesies disaster against me. And uh, Jehoshaphat, they know that this is the word from the Lord. And so he, he, he prophesies a true thing about the defeat of Israel and the death of Ahab. And then in chapter 19, verse 9 through 11, you have the charge from Jehoshaphat to the priests and Levites. In chapter 20, uh, verse 5, you have a Jehoshaphat's prayer in the temple that is emphasized. And then at the end of chapter 20 and verse 21, or the middle of the chapter, you have the people's song that is emphasized, how they respond, singing, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Um, some of the, the, the evaluation of the worship under Jehoshaphat was that he worshiped Yahweh and walked in his commandments. It says of him in chapter 17, it says in, he also taught the law to Judah He placed Levites in Judah to serve as judges. And then in chapter 20, he trusts in the Lord when the nation could be wiped out, right? So this is is the kind of king that Jehoshaphat was. Jehoram, uh, just a a bad king. That's really all you need to know about Jehoram. That's basically what we're we're given about him. Chapter 22, Ahaziah and Athaliah. Uh, Of course, Ahaziah was like Jehoram, walked in the ways of his father. He was killed. Uh, Athaliah, his mother, takes the the throne for a time as this kind of pseudo-monarch. She seeks to wipe out all the descendants of Ahaziah. However, one is left behind, and it's Joash in chapter 23 and 24. He's a good king, spared from the violent purge of his grandmother by good uh, by the good priest Jehoiada. Uh, the worship evaluations that we have of Joash says that he repaired the temple. And then in chapter 24 and verse 15, it says that he was buried in the city of David because he had done good in Israel toward God and his house, right? So on his epitaph, it said like he loved the Lord and he he furthered the worship in Israel by being good to the Lord's house. Chapter 25, Amaziah. Uh, he is an okay king, is the best way to put it, but his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. So not as bad as some others, uh, but yet his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. Chapter 26, Uzziah. For the most part, he's a good and faithful king. Uh, the, the evaluation of Uzziah is that he was taught the law of the Lord by the priests. So you see that in 26.5. Uh, he, he is instructed in the law, but his problem was his pride. It was his downfall. He, he goes and seeks to enter the temple and to burn incense where he has been stopped by the priest. He is <coughs> struck with uh, leprosy, I believe, is what happens to him. Um, yeah, look at verse 16. 
Yep, verse 21, he was a leper, uh, struck with leprosy from the sin. It is interesting, in 26, notice in verse 18, uh, and this is an important point for returning exiles. Here comes the priest to uh, stop Uzziah from entering, from, from offering this incense. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Uzziah's not, right? So it's a pretty like bold move to stand up to the king and say, hold on, you can't go and do that. So I think that there is something that should be learned. The, the exiles, the priests and Levites, take note. This is what good, king, good priests and Levites do, right? They, they further the right worship in the nation. Um, I want to jump ahead. You can read these on your own. Hezekiah, of course, we have in chapter 29. Great king, Hezekiah. Um, look at Manasseh. Manasseh in chapter 33. Um, Manasseh, of course, is probably the worst king in all of Israel's history. Uh, just a horrible, horrible person. But the one thing that we see about Manasseh, we don't see recorded in First and Second Kings, is he repents. Right? He, he repents of his sin. Uh, his evaluation, if we had a worship evaluation, how did he do? Well, he set up an idol in the temple. He led Judah to, in Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed out of the land, right? So how bad were the inhabitants in the land when Joshua came in? Well, Manasseh led him to do worse things, okay? But verses 15 and 16, he truly repents. And he shows his repentance by removing the idols, right, out of the, out of the temple. Look at verse 15. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. That's wonderful. I think that's just like great uh, what the Lord does uh, there with Manasseh, okay? This is, Again, important for the remnant back in the land. You can repent, right? Uh, there, there is hope. Um, Josiah, we'll just look at him in chapter 34 real quick. Uh, of course, Josiah, another good king, found the law of God under his reign, restored the worship of the temple, uh, realized his sin and the people's sin and not keeping the law, right? That's when he rends his cloak. How great is the judgment of the Lord upon us because we've not kept all the words of the law. And then he goes and he teaches uh, the law to, to the people, okay? Um, and then you have the last four kings, which we don't have a whole lot of information recorded about them. Uh, these are the guys that are, that the, the kingdom is taken away, that they are taken into exile under their reigns, okay? And then we get to the end, and we have, the very end, the decree of Cyrus, um, which we read at the beginning of Ezra, uh, and it is, it is setting us up that at the end of Chronicles, there is a future and there is a hope for the nation of Israel, and it begins with this decree, okay? So that's kind of breezing through, uh, uh, sprinting through, an outline of the book of, of Chronicles. I wanted to, to do that so we can just make a couple of key important points that I think the exiles should have taken from, from this book. First of all, the chronicler wastes no time or ink on the evil kings. Right? If you just look at the outline, notice that there are chapters devoted to good kings and there are there is a chapter or less than a chapter devoted to the evil kings. You think about... Um, presidents of the United States, if they want to be remembered as a historical figure, what do they need to do? 
They need to make broad, sweeping changes and programs and things like that. You know, you're, if you're FDR and, well, one, you're king or <laughs> president for years and years and years, but you establish something like the New Deal, which totally changes the way our relationship to the government is, you're uh, remembered forever. Well, in Israel's history, the kings that are remembered forever are good and faithful kings. It's not broad, sweeping, programmatic changes its faithfulness to the Lord. And I think that that's kind of the point that the chronicler wants them to know. Secondly, the centrality of David, the amount of time that is spent upon David, uh, the remnant needs to, to remember that their hope is in David in the past and David in the future, the promise of what God was going to do through that line, okay? Um, in chapter three, we didn't look at it, but in First Chronicles 3, the line of David goes past Zerubbabel, who comes back with the exiles, right? So it's showing that line of David didn't die out in the exile. It's still there. And Zerubbabel, who is named in Ezra, is one of the initial ones who goes back to the land. He's a descendant of David. And then in the genealogy in chapter 3, there's more people that come after Zerubbabel as well. So that promise still continues on. Thirdly, the centrality of the temple and worship. We've talked about this a lot as well. Um, but the, the, what is the first thing that the exiles do when they get back home? They rebuild the altar and they lay the foundation of the temple, right? This is, and then when that stops, what it comes the, here comes the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, encouraging them, hey, continue the work on the house of the Lord. This is central to your life and to your existence. The other thing that goes along with that, the good kings in Israel always encouraged the worship of the Lord, the restoration of the temple, the teaching of the law. They were, uh, if you could say it, the lead worshipers of the nation, right? They're, they're, they're leading in this way, okay? Fourthly, the kings who repented, I think like with, with uh, Manasseh, uh, you have this wonderful example of, of what happens when you turn from the Lord, um, and like I mentioned earlier, what Solomon prays in chapter six coincides with what Moses promises in Deuteronomy four. If you turn from your sin, the Lord will hear and restore. Fifthly, the leadership of the priests. You have uh, extended accounts of priests like Jehoiada who raised Josiah, right? That's uh, a, an example given for priests that are returning. And the same thing with like those priests who opposed Uzziah. Um, the other one that I have in, in your notes there is that the kings are the students of the Torah and the teachers of the Torah. Uh, like Kings like Josiah, right? They're reading the law. They're teaching it to the people. Again, is, is uh, uh, instructing the nation, um, teaching them like even David's situation, teaching the people how the ark should be carried. So we have another Uzzah situation. Uh, the seventh point and I only have eight, so that means I'll have two more, right? The Lord's long-suffering towards faithless Israel, right? You see this especially in the lives of faithless kings like Rehoboam and Abijam and Manasseh. These are not good kings, but yet the Lord uh, shows something positive out of their reign. And I think what he's demonstrating is that he's faithful even when they're faithless. Over and over and over we see this, this happen. Finally, uh, and, and this isn't in order of importance, but the northern kingdom's not lost. There's no lost tribes in the nation of Israel, right? The Mormons think that they came over to America, 
and there's no lost tribes of Israel. The faithful ones in the north came down and were part of the south, and they furthered the worship of, of the nation down there. So finally, I'll leave you with this quote from Stephen Dempster. He says, The world's hopes are found in genealogy and geography. Sion, which is a descendant, and Zion. David has arrived. The temple has been built. The world is well on its way to being restored. If there was ever any doubts about these points, Chronicles removes it. The sins of the people, however, is the great obstacle to these plans. And this sin leads to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, as well as to the exile of the people to Babylon. It seems as if Babylon has the last word at the end of the canon. But just as God descended the beginning of the canon to judge Babylon, and so to bring to nothing human pretensions to unite heaven and earth, so through a foreign king, he commands an exiled Judah to go up from Babylon and build the temple from which blessing will proceed. God is not finished with Abraham. There has been a setback, but the blessing will come through the Davidic house. Hope remains, right? And that's where the story ends. And really, who's the next Davidic king to come along is Jesus.